Get the latest news at the click of a button inside your car. The new Bloomberg Business app, now featuring Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. Listen to all your favorite Bloomberg radio stations and podcasts, including Bloomberg Surveillance, plus the latest news all on your dashboard. It's, it's free and easy to use. Just download the Bloomberg Business app on your smartphone and connect the phone to your car. The Bloomberg Business app, now with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto features. Download it free in the Apple Store or on Google Play. Presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. What we do here is we have smart guests like Will Kennedy just joining us at Queen Victoria Street in London on oil. And now joining us, his compatriot in Irish crime, Thomas Kennedy, joins us, chief <laughs> investment strategist at J.P. Morgan. One Kennedy to another, and you linked it when you sat down, and you looked at Will Kennedy's world and says, when the price of oil moves, you see in Chase's charge card juggernaut reaction. What do you observe as oil comes down? Yeah, we saw a change in the way the consumer was reacting to higher oil prices around August, September area in our Chase credit card data. Remember, we're banking about 20% of America. And what we saw there was... Nice plug. You nailed that early when, on. <laughs> when gasoline prices rose, you actually saw discretionary spending go down. Now, Tom, you might be saying, well, of course you're going to see that, right? Prior to August and September, in the post-COVID era, right. we did not see that relationship. It suggests <clears throat> the excess savings in America might actually be depleting after how many quarters of negotiating on it. Um, right. And then when we really dig into the, the accounts of these folks, and we do it in an anonymous, anonymous fashion, about half of America looks like they're out of excess yeah, savings. If you're, if you're missing words up, it's okay. You're sitting on the side of the table where we do that routinely. I, I, you know, I'm looking, Tom Kennedy, at, at the polarity between Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs today. You need the leadership of Bruce Kasdan and Michael Faroli to give you an economic backdrop. What's your economic backdrop that forms your outlook call this year? Yeah, we're expecting a growth slowdown pretty much like the rest of Wall Street at this point. And it is relatively simple and intuitive. You have the cost of capital above expected revenue in this economy. And if you think about America as one big business, it's very odd to see the cost of capital to be above expected GDP. It should force investors to say, maybe I'll just save instead of borrow money and invest in my business. We've seen this four or five times in the last 40 years. Just about every time you see a growth slowdown, Tom. So we should expect that to happen. The question becomes, what's the scenarios where it doesn't happen? And in those scenarios, you have one where either the consumer is much more resilient and they have access to borrowing and you're going to see growth come higher or something breaks in the meantime. Those are pretty dynamic and polarizing uh, outcomes in the future. Everything you set up until then, though, said by the 10-year, go along the curve, lock in some of the shield. Is that right? Yeah, I think it has to be. John, you have... At this point, a municipal bond that is giving you equity-like yields. And for the first time in 20 years, you, it is actually competing with the earnings yield on the S&P 500. For my clients that are gathering wealth for generations, I can show them something that has near zero default risk, and you can get equity-like yields. Is there risk to that? Of course there is. But that's a dynamic that they haven't seen 
in two decades, and now I can start to reposition some of their portfolio. And they say, Thomas, I'm nervous. I'm seeing yields all over the place. Are they reluctant to buy, even at these rates, even after you tell that story? Is there a reluctance still to buy it? In our, in our data for the last 12 months, this has been the trade that people have been excited about and can get invested in. That doesn't mean it's not without angst. When we saw a five-year tax-free yield show up two weeks ago, that dynamic changed. 5% tax-free, for people in New York City where we're sitting, guys, you gotta buy a taxable bond above 10% to get an equal return. So the behavioral experience for them did change there. Uh, I think it, as a market prognosticator makes you say, well, how high can rates really go before we're gonna see that crowding out effect of, of um, high yields? One of the mysteries of this year has been what the main driving force in yields has been. Is it the economy? Is it inflation? Yeah. Is it the politics or the fiscal backdrop? This is gonna be a really interesting test. What do you think is gonna be most important with yeah. respect to market volatility of all the things that are gonna happen this week? The Fed, expected outlook for the Fed. You can explain more than three quarters of all the movement in rates just from those two things, where the Fed is and where you expect them to be in a year's time. In the last couple of months, you have seen um, I would call it supply of treasuries become a little bit more of a factor, but not, not dominant at this point, Lisa. So as we look ahead, what's going to matter? The slowdown, how big of a slowdown is it? And importantly, what will the Fed's reaction function be? You said that half of America's are, half of America is pretty much out of savings based on your data. Yeah. Which half, right? I mean, is this the half that has been spending more aggressively and will continue to uh, if they had the money? Or is this a half uh, that is particular in the economy, right? I mean, we're talking about the two Americas. We've got a lot of Americas, and they're moving at different speeds. Yeah. The two Americas theme really resonates for me. But the folks that are out of excess savings are the bottom half of America. And those are traditionally the ones that don't have excess savings. So now they have a decision to make. They can either slow consumption or try to turn to their credit card at a time when credit card rates are historically punitive, even when you normalize them for, for uh, where interest rates are or base rates from the Fed. So I think the, the slowdown metrics make sense when your highest marginal propensity mm -hmm. to consume folks are running out of their excess savings. Really sharp article this weekend of the millions of Americans, they don't own Apple, they don't own NVIDIA, Microsoft, yeah. they missed the boat and they got a 201K. They walk into JP Morgan Chase this morning with a disastrous portfolio, they're miserable. How do you approach the active versus passive retirement debate? I think at, at this point in the cycle, Tom, active is gonna make the most sense. In that, when you're looking at a passive allocation, even to the equity market, the haves and have nots are there. On the one hand, you have, say, tech in the equity market that has gone through its optimization of its balance sheet. Layoffs in the tech sector have been big in the last 12 months. CapEx is now getting turned back on around AI, and the monetization phase is not going to be that long. Microsoft, as an example, 3% of their revenues are coming from AI already. Meanwhile, you move to small and mid-caps, and these are the most interest rate-sensitive sectors, and they have debt to EBITDA two to five times. They are going to feel this pain more than... Uh, than big tech. So in the equity market, as an example, active management, I think, makes sense. As a headline, early cycles when you rotate back to, to more passive ideas. And that's not where we are right now, Tom, in the minds of many. Late cycle is where people think we are right now. I, I think it's, it's, it's a model. And I, I'm really fascinated by the outlooks. I mean, Tom Kennedy's going to put together a 34-page outlook. I have a rule. I read the first seven. <laughs> hey, Tom, it must We're drive seven you nuts. Pages. This time of the year, where it's difficult to sort of get beyond mm -hmm. next week, to put something out for the next 12 months, how hard is that? 
Um, I think it's difficult when you're trying to do it at the end of a cycle. The, the Fed has just done the most aggressive rate hiking cycle we've seen. And where are you? Are you in the muddle through? Are you in the late cycle? Are you in the end cycle? That's the hardest part. But to be able to turn to, to your client and say to them, I can show you equity-like yields in fixed income, I, it's a way to buy some time and get some, some good yield in a portfolio. Pro tip, more charts. That's the, <laughs> that's the answer. You just fit it with charts. Pro tip, David Malpass at Bear Stearns years ago. When in doubt, add a chart. I saw that from David Costin over at Goldman this morning. I was going through his outlook. It was just full of charts and tables. Thomas, this was great. It's good to see you. Tom Kennedy there of JP Morgan Private you, Bank. Guy Johnson is expert at the development of jets, the crafts that we fly every day. And he knows that Christian Scherer bleeds Airbus. Scherer grew up in Toulouse, France. He's been part of Airbus way, way back for many, many years. And he is now the CCO of the great European airplane builder. Guy Johnson in Dubai. Guy, good morning. Good morning, Tom Keane. All good evening. The sun's setting on day one of the Dubai Air Show. And as you say, it has been a big one. We've seen some significant orders, some promise of even more still to come. And as you say, the wide body market feels like it is back. Over the last few years, this, this has been all about narrow bodies. The recovery out of the pandemic driven by the narrow bodies. Now it's the big workhorses of the sky. Their time to shine. Let's talk to Christian Scherer, as you say, the chief commercial officer at Airbus. If you want to know what's happening in this industry, he is the guy to talk to. Christian, nice to see you. Thanks for making some time for us. Look, the, the world at the moment feels like we've got a lot of geopolitical tension. We've got a lot of uncertainty. We've got a lot of economic uncertainty as well. Rates have been jacked up. Economies are slowing down. Yet it doesn't feel like it at this show. Huge orders across the piste in terms of what we're seeing from airlines from around the world. Why the disconnect? I wouldn't say it's a disconnect. You know, an order at an air show is... Uh, I wouldn't say anecdotal, but it's it's being uh, very much highlighted because it's an air show. Uh, you will, will have seen that this year alone there have been lots of orders, uh, in particular with, with us at Airbus, well before the air show, during the air show, yeah. there'll be orders after the air show. So it isn't like a, uh, an incredible peak all of a sudden. It's part of a phenomenon. The air but show is an event. it's been building for a while, though. It, this, it has. this is a kind of moment in time when you can take stock. As you say, you're about to, to sign a very large order with Turkish Airlines, a huge order. A lot of narrow bodies in there, but a lot of wide bodies as well. This feels like a moment in time just to reflect on what is happening. And it feels like demand from the customer is still very strong. Demand within the industry is very strong. They've, they've watched what happens with the narrow bodies and the, they've sold out. Now these guys want to make sure that they've got their slots. Like, what is driving this demand? What gives the industry this confidence? Well, probably uh, the fact, uh, Guy, that we're... Uh, seemingly in an undersupply situation again. So there's a lot of jockeying for delivery positions. You don't want to miss the train. Uh, just a few years ago in the midst of the pandemic, uh, remember we manufacturers were asked to slash our production by roughly 50%. Uh, so it takes time. There's a lot of industrial inertia to rebuild an industrial system that's capable of producing large numbers of wide body airplanes. And so they don't come in large numbers. So yep. you don't want to miss the train. You, you study the numbers very carefully. If I, if I look at what is happening with discretionary spend at the moment, I listen to LVMH or Richemore or Diageo, they're talking about that, dis, that sort of high-end discretionary spend beginning to roll over. Mm. 
Do you think that happens in aviation or do you think the lesson from the pandemic is, do you know what, I w won't have the cognac, I won't have the Cartier watch, but I will have the airfare? I think the latter is true. I think uh, an air trip is no longer a luxury per se. It is part of discretionary consumer spending. It's probably a... Uh, at the top of the list? It, I would think that the recent behavior that we've seen beyond the obvious phenomenon of pent-up demand coming loose after the pandemic, yep. I believe that the consumer will tend to go enjoy him, himself, yep. herself, visit, visit uh, friends, family, before they buy an expensive watch. In terms of kind of what happens next, do you see this demand being sustainable? Do you, like you talk about the fact that this, the air show shouldn't just be how we perceive what's going on. You see this as being a sustainable story now. You think white body demand is back where in the cycle do you think we are? I'm not sure we can talk about cycles as much as we used to anymore. Yep. So I do believe fundamentally it's sustainable. Our studies are telling us that we will see continued growth in air travel, including in wide body air travel, yep. a little bit less perhaps than before the pandemic um, or irrespective of the pandemic because of the inflationary pressures, yep. increases in fuel prices, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned it. So we, but we do see sustained demand, including on intercontinental travel. And we do see on the large aircraft where fuel burn in particular and technology plays the biggest part, increased demand to replace old yeah. airplanes. So there's more replacement in the years ahead than there was before. You talk about inflation. What are you building into these contracts? You're selling airplanes five, 10 years down the road. Inflation is running hot right now. How are you building that into your contracts? How much are you building into that contract? How important when you sign a contract is that escalation clause? That's a really good question. And that is a subject of finding the right balance of how you share that risk of inflation with the customer, the airline, that is making a purchase decision many years in advance. Typically, uh, Guy, what we do is we index our pricing on indices of material costs and labor costs. Those are U.S. industries. Those are the most mature indices yep. that, uh, that exist in this industry. So we index that. And then if it's a discussion, you know, depending on how far out the airplane is being ordered for, yep. uh, that's a discussion of how we share that risk, that, that inflationary risk with our customer. Are you going to be able to build all these aeroplanes? I spoke to Guillaume a few days ago, the CEO. He, he was talking to me about going from 9 to 10 on the 350 program. If this demand continues, do you have to go 10 to 11, 11 to 12, 12 to 13? And how hard is that? Well, one step at a time. Uh, remember, we're coming from, we were at a rate 10 before yep. the pandemic. We slashed it down. Now we're ramping back up to 10. It's not a trivial thing. Um, Airbus is not necessarily the limiting factor here. It's a huge supply chain that we're yep. pulling with us, and that's the pacing item. Is it conceptually possible that we go further? Yes. In fact, the, uh, the ever-optimistic uh, commercial man in me will say, yes, most probably yep. we will. But that is not for today. We have objective 10 per month in yep. our site. That's what we're going to do. And our programs are running very much on time. One final quick question. It's come up a lot today in the conversations that I've been having. Rolls-Royce, new CEO, Tufan, appears to be running the business in a slightly different way. He can clearly add up, he clearly wants to make some money, and that is resetting the relationships within the industry. They are sole supply on the A350. 
how, as that relationship changes, how does the relationship between Airbus and Rolls-Royce change, Airbus and Emirates change? How does it change the nature of the, uh, of the relationship between, between supplier, customer uh, and ultimate customer? Well, I'd say two things. The first one, the most important is we're really, really happy with the Rolls-Royce engine on the A350 program and on the A330 as well. But on the A350 program in particular, the XWB engine, I will dare say, is by far the best engine in the sky today. In reliability, in fuel burn, in durability, it's a wonderful engine. Um, so that's point one. Point two, yes, there is a resetting of pricing in the engine business. The fuel burn, the engine guys have developed fabulous machines to lower the fuel burn. That comes at the expense at some expense on the maintenance side because these engines consume parts quicker. They yep. consume less fuel, more parts. And that reset is what's happening in the industry, in the engine industry at large, and Rolls-Royce is no exception. It's been great to see you. Thank you very much indeed, Christian. Thanks for taking us, uh, taking the time and, have, and hosting Pleasure. us here at Airbus. Tom Keane from the Dubai Air Show. The sun is setting here. Back to you. Guy Johnson, thank you so much. Always uh, interesting. ever says make it complicated that is why nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward client ready resources from clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients nationwide is on your side nationwide investment services corporation member finra columbus ohio Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. She has become acclaimed. Claudia Sam was someone out of Michigan in the Fed a number of years ago with a really, really dry, smart academic paper on government assistance and how to decide wrapped around recession economics. She's literally become a household name. Dr. Sam joins us now, former Fed economist, founder of Sam Consulting. I guess congratulations. The only one, Claudia, had a bigger year than you was Taylor Swift. We expect we'll see you at a Kansas City football game uh, anytime soon. Claudia Sam, I've got to get it out of the way just because of the notoriety. How close are we to recession? We're closer than we were say the middle of this year, we're not in a recession. And that's not just the SOM rule. Look around, the economy is still growing. Now, that's no guarantee that we will be in that place um, you know, in the, in the coming months, and yet we are not in a danger zone with the labor market. And there's a lot of reasons why we may have seen the unemployment rate come up that could be good reasons, like workers coming back. What's important here, and you have it in your research note to us, and, and Bramo, I think, has really been out front on this, is almost the behavioral impact, think Thaler at Chicago, the behavioral impact of feedback loops. Tell us about what you're working on the new, I'm, I'm selling this, folks, for Claudia. She needs something to do. The new acclaimed SOM feedback loop. What's it look like? Well, this is the logic 
I mean, the SOMRO is about the unemployment rate rising a relatively small amount. That happens early in recessions. It's been very accurate. The idea behind it comes well before me in that once the unemployment rate starts rising, it keeps going. Because on the demand side, there's this feedback loop. Some people lose their jobs, then they buy less, then those workers lose their jobs, and, and so on and so forth. And that's where it really gets going. What we see right now is not just the demand side, which would be a typical path into a recession. We see this, you know, workers have really come back. We've gone from labor shortages to now some workers that are looking for jobs, right? It's going to take the jobs longer to catch up. That's a good thing. We needed those workers. It's just as with everything else in this economy, it's been messy to line up supply and demand. So now it's in the labor market. How uncomfortable does it make you to say this time is different? Very uncomfortable. Uh, And yet, we could have said many times since the pandemic, this time is different, and very legitimately. You know, I talk about the quote-unquote SOM rule breaking, which is it would trigger, and then we would not go into a recession. Last year, we saw two quarters of declines in GDP growth that has only happened inside of recession since World War II. It happened, and we were not in a recession. So the SOM rule could be next in line to break, and... I mean, I prefer it didn't. I prefer unemployment stay low. But if it did, my base case is we don't go in a recession. Does this mean uh, that right now you see sort of the immaculate disinflation or you see just year over year inflation come down to the Fed's target by later next year without necessarily the Fed doing anything more and even potentially cutting rates like so many Wall Street firms seem to believe? I take issue with the idea or the term of immaculate disinflation. I mean, this is coming out of a pandemic. We know where this is coming from. It's not just like it appeared. And yet, to your point, we've already seen it, right? And there are not all the disruptions worked out in the economy. The labor market's a place where we've seen some of like the kind of last momentum. There is more to give in terms of inflation coming down. It's going to be messy. I expect tomorrow not to be a fun day uh, in core inflation. And and there is some of the demand to come out. And we've seen that wage growth has slowed back to something more normal. So everything is rowing in the right direction on inflation. It's just going to be slow and bumpy. Can you draw a distinction, Claudia, between people coming back into the market and the participation rate, which hasn't actually gone up so dramatically, even as we do talk about people coming back into the labor force? When we look at the year as a whole, participation has moved up. That's a very slow-moving creature, just in terms of the measurement. We've absolutely seen a burst of uh, workers. Women's employment is at an all-time high. We have seen a big surge of immigrants in terms of the work visas finally getting processed. So we've had people coming back in. It is there in the data and the labor force participation. And some of these factors are more temporary. And that's part of the jobs being able to catch up. Like we're still adding jobs at a good clip, just not like last year. Uh, Claudia, so it, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think it's really important know. into the CPI data tomorrow and retail sales the next day. The Boston Fed as a cottage industry of trying to, this is Michelle Barnes years ago, folks, trying to figure out guessing consumption. Can we actually guess consumption? How do you respond to people talking about, well, this is the credit card data or that? What do the academics like you actually say about gaming 70% of the American economy? Right, so I was one of the lead forecasters on consumer spending at the 
Federal Reserve for about a decade. So I spent a lot of time trying to forecast right. uh, consumer spending. The big piece, and I've talked about this recently, it's the income. Like if we lose the labor market, we lose consumers because many people spend their paychecks. If we lose consumers, we're done. We're in a recession. So to me, it's like all eyes on the labor market that it keeps right. in the place it is. And household balance sheets are in a place that they have not been in for a very long time, particularly at the bottom. Like that's really encouraging. Claudia, thank you so much. Claudia Sun, a former Federal Reserve economist. There's a lot to talk about here, John, as we get to Toto uh, Wolf, team principal, CEO of Mercedes. But, John, the real issue here to me, and we're going to do a little bit more spanner and CISPAR. I was reading about the CISPAR. Okay. Folks, the side impact bar is very, very important for all these different cars. I look forward and to you flexing your knowledge more, on this. Yeah, thank you. All this right. is more of an engineering <laughs> I discussion. Look, I think you're looking at it. Maybe what we've had I hope before. Toto's not running away from the camera. He joins <laughs> us now. Toto Wolf, team principal and CEO of Mercedes-AMG Patronus Formula One. Toto, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Let's just start with this new racetrack. We've spoken to a couple of people about it already. What kind of feedback, Toto, are you getting from the drivers on the simulator going into race weekend? First of all, good morning. Good morning to New York. We can also talk uh, side impact structures if you wish, but I think <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna lose some of your uh, some of your uh, audiences. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm skilled at that. <laughs> yeah, we can jump on a separate call. I'll tell you. Um, so the drivers have been in the simulator, and I spoke to Lewis last week um, when we had a meeting um, in the factory, and he said the straight is so long um, and impressive, but we don't really know what to expect because, as you mentioned before, we're racing between 10 and 12 uh, local time. Nevada nights, I've heard, can be pretty, pretty cold, and the only night racing experience that we have is uh, Singapore and a little bit of the Middle East, but uh, obviously never on a new track. Uh, uh, close to five degrees centigrade uh, with um, Pirelli tires that have never experienced these kind of temperatures. It does raise some questions as to why it's being hosted at this time of the year, at this time of night. Toto, how did that come about? And would you push for a change next season? Well, obviously, uh, Las Vegas stands for entertainment and show, and and Liberty came up with the plan, which is which is great. To be honest, we have not not raced in Las Vegas for a long time, certainly not in um, modern Formula One, and uh, going there with this new format in the night is going to be spectacular. I think uh, it's been said before, the track is brand new. That means the surface can be quite um, greasy or oily because that's what asphalt do, does when it's new. Uh, we haven't raced in those temperatures, as I said before, but in any case, it's going to be a big spectacle. Uh, I don't know whether we will be sliding around or whether the track is going to be really grippy, but we shall find out in a few days. We've been talking about qualifying and the prospect of maybe needing to do two, three laps to get tyres up to optimal temperature to put in that quickest lap. Toto, any thoughts on that at this point? Um, yeah, we've had it in the past that sometimes you just need to slowly warm up the tires because if you push them too hard at the beginning they grain you know then they you slide over the surface the grip is never going to come so bringing them in driving them carefully getting them up to temperature um and that could last uh, a few laps depending and we're getting a little bit technical here uh depending on how much you heat your rims and your brakes beforehand and 
teams have various concepts. They either want to have the front tires pretty cool and, and long-lasting, or you heat them a lot, which gives you grip for a, for a single lap for qualifying, but obviously harms them for the race. It could be chaos, or it could be really exciting to one or the other. It goes to a conversation we've been having all season on this programme, Toto, just how you balance pursuing commercial gains without compromising race quality. What do you make of the current balance of Formula One? I think we had that balance, uh, to cope with that balance for for a long time. And I think why we love the sport so much is because it's honest. Entertainment follows sport. We're not designing regulations or content because we we want to create scripted content uh, with a certain outcome, with a certain uh, degree of uh, non-variability. We're doing this, we're launching ourselves. There's technical regulations, there's sporting regulations, and then off you go. With a certain within a certain framework of uh, cost cap, which is similar to the salary cap uh, in some of the US leagues, everybody has the same starting point. And then we launch ourselves into this. So it's honest. The stopwatch never lies. And, and therefore, the entertainments follow suit. And yet we go through these periods of dominance. We saw it with Ferrari late 90s, early 2000s. We saw it with you, Mercedes, for a long time as well. And now with Red Bull. So Lewis has said recently in the last couple of days, the Red Bull is so far away. I think they're probably going to be very clear for the next couple of years. From your standpoint as team principal, is that a realistic assessment of the future, the next couple of seasons? Well, we're giving it all um, to, to break a cycle. Like you said, we had um, five years of dominance of Ferrari, then we had a short spell of Red Bull, and then it was us um, eight times in a row. And and now it's the second constructor championship for Red Bull or the third driver championship with a indeed very good driver. So we are, you know, with all we have um, in, back in the factory and at the racetrack, we're trying to come up with a car and with, with an execution that is as good as it can be. And we have a next cycle of regulatory change in 2026, but we got to turn this around there. Well, for this race, and, and, and I think Toto Wolf, it's, it's very clear. There's three late races left, Las Vegas, and then back over to the Middle East, Qatar and Abu Dhabi. Are you racing right now for next year? Yes, we have, we have done for quite some while. We're still fighting for the second championship um, in the constructor championship. We, we are uh, second at the moment and Ferrari behind us. So that, that's an interesting one. Um, but, you know, Deep down, mm-hmm. second or third, third place doesn't matter. We gotta, right. uh, with all humility, fight for the front, and that's why many months ago already we've switched and we transitioned to a new car. Toto, there's a, f- a phenomenal photo of three Austrians: Niki Lauda, Toto Wolf, and a guy named Schwarzenegger. It's a really, really cool photo. And to take what Arnold Schwarzenegger did, and all of our American audience removed from F1 understands the tie-in here. When you look at at, at the show of Formula One, the Netflix success of which you're a star. Has Formula One gone to showbiz in 2023? Obviously, you know, there's a few Austrians of us that have gone um, beyond (laughs) beyond the country uh, and Schwarzenegger probably the biggest and I was lucky enough uh, to uh, be very close friends with Nicky. We traveled the world around in his function as chairman of the team, and there were very valuable lessons that I that I could learn. Did we go beyond the sports, too much entertainment? No, I don't think so. Um, we have uh, we are trying different formats with the sprint race weekends and all Las Vegas racing in the night. And if it needs calibration to provide a better show, 
whilst staying true to our values of the, the honest sport, I think we've got to try it. But the core product, the Grand Prix on Sunday, within the regulations, financial, technical and sporting is always what Formula One has been uh, all about. Let's finish on the prospect of expansion, Toto. I believe you've been against the expansion of the grid. Do you think it's now ultimately inevitable? I think we, the 10 teams that have been in the sport have been so for a long, long time. Uh, the smaller teams or midfield teams have gone through a lot of hardship a few years ago when COVID struck. Um, but in, in any case, they, they fought for survival and here we are with the cost cap kicking in. Um, the teams have, most of the teams have turned into profitability and, and finally uh, are in a, a sustainable way in continuing. But that is not a given. You know, we, we are on a high at the moment and, and therefore we, we, we've got to respect what the FIA and the commercial rights holder are going to decide whether we, they want to have an additional team joining. And obviously, if we are being asked, we're saying as long as it's a great for the show, as long as we provide a better, better entertainment, more income, uh, why would any team be against it? But fundamentally, it's, um, it's somebody else that decides. And Toto, it's wonderful to catch up with you, sir, going into race weekend. Good luck to you and the team. I'm looking forward to watching the race over the weekend. Thank you for being with us. Toto Wolf there, team principal and CEO of Mercedes-AMG Petronas F1. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We've got clocks for any number of things. Four days, 17 hours, 41 minutes, 53 seconds to shut down. John Lieber knows the shutdown clock well. Over the many decades, he is at Eurasia, Eurasia Group. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining from London uh, this morning. We're riveted to the shutdown clock. What's the likelihood that uh, the nation's going to turn into a pumpkin at midnight on Saturday? Well, it's always exciting in U.S. fiscal policy, and the shutdown clock is fun to watch. But I think fundamentally, both parties are basically aligned around not shutting down the government. So I think that kind of this situation looks like it did a couple of months ago, where you've got Republicans making demands for spending cuts, uh, Democrats saying we don't really want to do that. But neither side really wants to shut down the government. And Republicans are now putting forward this plan to keep funding going through January for part of the government, February for the rest. I would bet by the end of this week that's passed because no, unless there's some, you know, some mistake or something goes wrong and these two sides decide they just hate each other too much to actually do this. My, my quick read of the Moody's announcement was it was sort of a statement on civics in America. Are we going to go through a process now and towards the next shutdown six months out, a year out, where we yearn to go back to the system you knew working for McConnell years ago, or are we going to some new system of legislating and appropriations in America? 
You know, I mean, the, the system is basically the same as it's been for the last decade, where one party or the other is trying to leverage these deadlines to get the fiscal policy they want. And you mentioned with the Moody's downgrade, interest rates and basic civics, but there's also demographics. And the U.S. demographics aren't changing. And because of that, you've got this massive increase in spending as uh, re- there's more retirees in this country, while tax revenues remain basically flat as a percent of GDP. And what that means is the combination is you get more debt as a share of GDP. We've seen the stock of debt triple over the last 10 years, and that's probably going to happen again uh, in the future. So I think this Moody's rating is, yes, about the short term, about higher interest rates, and about the dysfunction in Congress. But fundamentally, this country is on a bad path long term fiscally. Neither party has any seriousness about doing anything about it. Even the Democrats in the what they called an Inflation Reduction Act, which was ostensibly designed to, yes, invest in green technology, but also reduce the deficit, couldn't muster a single thing that's an actual tax increase in there. They had to rely on these so things they could spin as uh, loophole closers. And in the end, that bill is probably going to end up increasing the deficit, too. So there's simply no seriousness in dealing with this problem, and there won't be until there's a crisis. Which raises a question of what it will take. And we were talking with Neil Kashkari last week, and he said he actually questions how much the uh, fiscal concerns about the U.S. really are affecting benchmark rates in the U.S., saying that if this really were an international concern, you would see the dollar weaken. From an international negotiation standpoint, is the fiscal backdrop of the U.S. entering into the discussion more? Is it putting the U.S. in a more difficult situation? With China and other potential trading partners? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a factor for sure. The U.S. has relied both on kind of, you know, foreign funding of its debt, but also the Federal Reserve as a marginal buyer of debt for uh, this 10-year period of low and dropping interest rates. And that's now shifting fundamentally, where foreign strategies around U.S. debt are going to start affecting the interest rate outlook. And it's not going to be such a sure thing uh, that the U.S. can continue to fund these, these massive deficits. However, All evidence so far suggests that when there's a flight to safety, U.S. Treasuries are still the place to be. The U.S. has the reserve currency. And despite all the issuance that we've seen this year, people still think that the U.S. is a pretty safe bet. It's got a deep and rich pool of taxable assets that you can get at in an emergency if you needed to. The big question is not whether or not the U.S can repay or has the money to repay is if there's the political will to keep this going and what it looks like in a crisis where you might need to see an instant uh, increase in taxes or something. John, just looking ahead to Wednesday, we are going to get that meeting between Xi Jinping and President Biden. What are you looking for? You know, I, I think this is a very low bar to get over. Uh, the big the big celebration is the fact that they're meeting at all. I think a key question is if they resume the military-to-military communications that were cut off after the Pelosi visit. This would help de-risk some of the challenges that you're seeing in the South China Sea, where China's, you know, the China argues the U.S. has been aggressively going, encroaching on their territory, the Philippines as well, and they've been sending these warning signs to the U.S. that they, you know, telling them to back off. Resuming the military-to-military communications is a step at trying to help de-escalate those tensions. That's probably the most we can hope for. I'm really curious to see what Xi Jinping says in his speech to the American people. And I'm also watching what is his message going to be to U.S. corporate executives who are very worried about a sudden stop in their ability to do business in China. What message does he give them to reassure them that China is still a safe place for them to do business? I think those three things will be the most uh, interesting to watch coming out of this week. That last point. 
it's just absolutely huge and a big one for us all week. John, thank you. John Lieber there, if you raise your group. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.